We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Ashish Jha. He is the K.T. Lee Professor of Global Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. He is a practicing general internist and is also Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Jha received his MD from Harvard Medical School and trained in internal medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. He completed his general medicine fellowship at Brigham and Women's Hospital and received his MPH degree from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Jaw is a member of the Institute of Medicine at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. In September, Dr. Jaw will begin work as the Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jaw's research focuses on improving the quality and costs of healthcare systems with a specialized focus on the impact of policies. He has published over 200 papers in prestigious journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine and the British Medical Journal, and he heads a personal blog on using statistical data research to improve health quality. He has led groundbreaking research around Ebola and is now on the front lines of the COVID-19 response. Dr. Jaw leads national analysis of key issues around the COVID-19 pandemic, advising policymakers and elected officials at the state and federal level, and appearing frequently on national television news outlets such as CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, and in written coverage from national newspapers including the New York Times and the Washington Post. Harvard Global Health Institute is providing critical analysis and data on national and state-by-state testing with Dr. Ja, a vocal advocate for increasing testing and contact tracing who has written extensively on the subject. His work has appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, Health Affairs, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and Stat News, among others. Ashish, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm hoping that we can discuss issues around schools reopening and then also discuss the topics of viral spread and what we currently know about immunity to COVID-19. Does that sound like a a good scope? Sounds great. Lots of interesting stuff to cover there, so I'm happy to do it. Yes, and I appreciate your time on this podcast. I know how busy you are, and and it's really um, an honor to have you on here. So thank you so much. American schools are just now beginning their academic years. Can you share with us your thoughts on the possibility of of schools reopening for in-person classes? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe I can just take a little bit of a step back and, and just frame this conversation around a couple of principles. Principle number one is there is overwhelming evidence that in-person school is really good for kids, particularly young kids, uh, but all kids. And I'm a dad of three kids, uh, you know, who range from rising third grader to eighth grader to 10th grader. And I think it's really important that all three of those uh, kids get back to school. Uh, Second is that much of the evidence so far suggests that the younger kids benefit disproportionately. That while my 10th grader 
may be able to do okay with Zoom and remote learning. Again, for her, it would still be much better to be in person. Um, for the third grader, it's particularly important because in the early days, you're really developing skills. So, and then the last point I'll just quickly make is if we don't have in-person schools, the effects will not be evenly felt, that they will be disproportionately felt by uh, poor and minority kids, and they will be disproportionately felt by women who end up bearing the burden of all that additional childcare. So I put that as a context to say it's really, really important that we figure out how to get schools back open. The problem is what we know about this virus is that it spreads most effectively when you have large numbers of people gathered indoors for extended periods of time, which it includes bars and restaurants, but unfortunately also describes schools. And so the way I have thought about this is that there are places, and I'm happy to dig more into details, but there are places in the country um, where I just don't think it's safe to send kids back to school right now. And those places should be working on bringing their virus levels down so they can make it safe. Whereas there are other places in the country where with good policies and smart decisions, it's absolutely reasonable to send kids back to school in person. Um, so it has to really be a county by county, locality by locality, state by state decision. Okay, great. I, and I appreciate the kind of the background thinking about the, the overall benefits for, for the children going to schools. So if you're in a community that has lower rates of COVID-19 infection and, and has things at least under some reasonable control, what can be done at the school level to maintain safety if that school is in an area where it's potentially safe enough to consider reopening the schools? Yeah. So let's take a place like New York City or Boston uh, or Ann Arbor, Michigan. And there's a bunch of places. And I'm just picking some, specific, you know, some specific places where I know the underlying infection rates. They're pretty low in those places. Uh, so I think from a community spread point of view, those places are pretty reasonable. Uh, it's pretty reasonable to open up schools there. What can you do to make that schooling experience safe, not just for kids, but also for the adults? Because you can't run schools without teachers and staff and protecting them is every bit as important as protecting the kids, right? So um, what you need to do is you need to do a couple of things in my mind. Number one is you got to have a mandatory mask policy. Uh, everybody's got to be wearing a mask indoors. Um, you know, so people bring up, well, what about like kindergartners who may struggle? And we can talk about some specific exceptions. But, you know, I have an eight-year-old. He wears a mask every time we go out. He can handle it. I think most kids, uh, once you get beyond first or second grade, can handle it. So mask wearing is critical. And then the second is you've got to work on ventilation and airflow. And sometimes, you know, people talk it into d detailed issues around HVAC, et cetera. Number one thing is you just got to be able to open up windows. And if your windows are shut, like figure out, go to make, get maintenance in and, and open those windows up. And in places where uh, that may not be enough, think about having classes outside. Uh, take a city park, you know, and, and, uh, and make that classroom for a while. And the bottom line is that there isn't a single magic bullet that will make schools perfectly safe. But given the enormous cost of not having in-person schools, there's a lot we can do to make it reasonably safe, certainly safer than, you know, than not doing these things. Right. And our thinking and, and knowledge around infection rates and transmission rates in children has certainly evolved over these last few months. So can you tell us what we currently know about the rates of transmission of COVID-19 both among younger children and also amongst older children? Because there does seem to be some difference there. 
Yeah, a couple of things. So first of all, and I just want to get this out of the way, everybody knows that when kids get infected, they're much more likely to have mild disease. They very rarely get very sick. And that's one of the, one of the few silver linings of this pandemic. Uh, but the question around transmission uh, remains contentious. And when you read the American Academy of Pediatrics or the National Academy of Medicine reports, what they largely say is we don't know for sure. But here's where the kind of summary of the evidence is. Um, the younger kids, and I'll define this in a second, younger kids seem to transmit less than older kids. Uh, what is that cut point? Well, there is no cut point, but we think somewhere around the age of 10. So when I think about my three children, my 15-year-old almost surely transmits the way an adult would. Uh, my 13-year-old may or may not, probably more like an adult, and my 8-year-old probably transmits less. And how much less? Probably meaningfully less, but I'm using vague words because I don't know. And there's so many studies and none of them have really nailed it down. So the way I think about it is younger kids transmit less, older kids transmit like adults. Somewhere around 10 or 12 is that cut point, but there isn't a cut point, it's a gradation. And that probably means that it's safer to get younger kids back into classrooms than it is to get high schoolers back. Right. And that's certainly, you know, as you said, we don't know. And this is a novel coronavirus. We're learning as we go. It just naturally makes sense, though, with coronavirus causing colds throughout the wintertime. And we all know how easily children spread that, that it would just make sense that, that they are a significant vector for that. So how do you think about the lower transmission rate among children compared with adults and then the risk to teachers who may have underlying health issues, as well as the possibility of children bringing COVID-19 home to their parents or grandparents or whoever else lives in that family unit? Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, first is I absolutely believe that for teachers who are truly at high risk, somebody who's, uh, who's uh, older, somebody who has you know, compromised states, We've got to be able to make accommodations for those teachers. So if you're opening up schools and you have, let's say, a 70-year-old a teacher with an immune, a compromised immune system who doesn't feel comfortable working in person, I get that. And I think we've got to find reasonable ways. If that represents a minority of teachers. Uh, we've got to be able to find ways of accommodating teachers. Again, there is no glory in getting our teachers infected. You can't run schools without teachers. It's a horrible thing. So we've got to find ways of protecting teachers. Okay, so that's sort of point one. Point two is that there is um, the, this concern about kids bringing it back home. Absolutely something that I think we need to be thinking about. I believe if we have uh, universal mask wearing in schools in a low community transmission neighborhood in an area. And then the third part, which I have been advocating for, which is to have some amount of surveillance testing. The risks of that child bringing home the virus gets very, very small. And it isn't zero, but presumably you're not going to lock, if you don't have in-person school, you're not going to lock that kid up at home for the next year. And so they probably will go see some friend. They'll probably go do some things. And the chances of that person, that kid bringing a virus home is also not zero. So I just want to be very clear that if people are looking for zero risk, uh, it doesn't exist. And you're going to, and as long as people are going out and about, there will be some amount of risk. But the point is you can keep that risk really low. Great. And a few moments ago, you made a, a little bit of a comment about mask exceptions for, you know, very younger children or perhaps others who either can't tolerate it or have underlying behavioral issues. Do you mind commenting on that, on your thoughts on that just a little bit? 
Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm obviously not a, an expert on how to get uh, young kids who have maybe behavioral issues or other challenges, how to, how to help them. Uh, I do think, what, as I've been talking to pediatricians and I've been talking to uh, early childhood educators and experts, um, the way I think about it is, first of all, even I think most kindergartners probably can wear a mask. Um, some are going to have real problems with, you know, kind of feeling like it's, it's restrictive. And there are these desensitization and other things, you know, going and seeing your pediatrician and seeing if there are methods. Pediatricians, I think, are getting better and better at working with children to help them. Um, the, the last thing, and this is where we now get out of the evidence and, and more into speculation, but we think it's probably right, is that you can think about face shields. Face shields are not as good as masks. Uh, but probably offer some level of protection. And if the kids are wearing face shields, uh, and again, I wouldn't want a whole class of everybody wearing face shields, but let's say a couple of kids, uh, the teacher's wearing a mask, all the other kids are wearing a mask. Uh, again, good ventilation, low community transmission area, it's probably pretty safe. So uh, it's not one of those things where it's, there's a perfect alternative solution, but my sense is most kids can wear masks uh, and the small, very small number who can't, there may be alternatives that are going to be less good, but still helpful. Right. And, and as you say, with those alternatives, it's better than not wearing anything. So um, probably a happy medium there. So you've already touched on some of these ideas, but just kind of globally, how do we balance maintaining the safety of children, school staff, and families with all of the other needs of children that they have, such you know, their education, their mental health of not being in school and with their peers and the developmental process there. there. There's the issues of access to school meals for the many children who rely on that as part of their basic nutritional status. So globally, how do you think about this? Yeah, this is, this is the thing that has been most frustrating to me, Ted. I think the benefits of having kids back in school are enormous. And they're not just educational ones, so they clearly are educational as well. You already brought up nutrition. Uh, emotional and mental health benefits of having kids back in school. Um, there's some very disturbing data about the rise of physical and sexual abuse of kids during lockdowns uh, because they don't have, uh, those kids don't have a place to go and there is no place that can monitor them. So what I like to remind people is that the cost of being fully online and just giving up on in-person education is enormous. It's enormous for our kids. And if we choose to do that, we should not choose to do that lightly. And we should not think that that is somehow the quote unquote safe option. It may be safer from a coronavirus point of view, but it is not safer from an overall health point of view. Unless, again, you're in one of those hot zones where it's really dangerous. So it's always a balancing act. But what I worry about is that this conversation has become so politicized that almost everybody finds themselves in one of two camps. A, everybody is remain remote until we have a vaccine camp, which I think is, is largely irresponsible uh, towards our kids and towards particularly minority and poor kids, particularly towards women. Um, and then the other camp of just open up the schools. Hey, if, you know, if, we, if nurses and doctors can do it, why can't teachers? Totally irresponsible. And so, so we've got to find that balance. And my general take is uh, the balance should be shifted as much as possible towards uh, allowing in-person education where it is safe to do so. Yeah. And you explained that very, very well. Um, you know, this idea of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs has really gained a lot of traction in terms of having long-term impacts on 
both mental and physical health. And, and I just want, it, it makes you wonder if we look back at this in five or 10 years, how, how much of just this experience may actually be its own ace um, that, yeah. that has long-term impacts that we're just not even realizing now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit away from uh, it's related to schools, but a little bit different. Um, can you explain the current thinking around droplet spread and aerosolization of COVID-19 and how this affects risks in indoor versus outdoor venues? And you touched on it a little bit with opening the windows and yep. doing class at the local park, but yep. give us the current thinking on this. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's been sort of a huge kind of debate about droplets versus aerosolization. Aerosol, aerosol uh, mediated transmission. And, and the way I look at this is, first of all, there's again a continuum. This is not a dichotomy. And here's kind of a simple way to think about it. We think droplets really are about that six feet of distance. And everybody has talked about six, maintaining six feet of distance. Whereas aerosols, you know, come from when you speak to those fine particles from a cough or even just speaking, which can linger for a long period of time and go much further than six feet. You know, and, and the way I think about it is it's a combination of both. You know, so part of the reason for having open windows is and improving the ventilation is you're going to uh, really mix, you know, dilute out the aerosolized virus. Uh, you're going to bring in fresh air and take some of the uh, virus-laden air out uh, with that ventilation. And, but that doesn't mean droplets are not super important. They clearly are, and maintaining that distance is also really important. Uh, and that's why we wear masks as well, is that it really it dramatically reduces uh, droplet transmission. So I, I would say to folks, don't think of this as so much of a dichotomy. Think of it as, as, a, as a continuum. And again, the key here is you don't want to be spending large amounts of time indoors without good ventilation with people who are not wearing masks. That's where we see a vast majority of the spread. And if we can avoid those kinds of uh, contexts and gatherings, uh, we can make a huge headway on this virus. Great. And on a very affiliated note here, can you please explain for us the concept of needing exposure for a certain period of time or a certain volume of the virus in order Absolutely. to become infected? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so in the early days, and it still happens now where you, know, you hear of like the biker who was biking down the path without a mask and people would get very angry and say, you know, you're infecting hundreds of people as you're riding back. And, and the answer is no, that just doesn't work that way. Uh, because first of all, uh, you need a certain concentration of the virus. We don't know the exact amount. Uh, and, and, that need, and you need to breathe in, it, uh, in infected air uh, or get droplets, you know, sort of for a significant enough period of time. So um, with aerosolized, like I think if you, the people often talk about 10 minutes. I don't know there's anything magical about 10 minutes. I think if you walked into a, let's say, a, a, a small, uh, you know, kind of cramped room with no ventilation and somebody there was coughing uh, out virus, you probably could get infected within five minutes. I wouldn't, so I wouldn't use 10 minutes as a magical anything. But the other part that we're learning, and this is new and I think really cool, is that, so there's a certain level of virus you need, amount of virus you need to get infected. But also, it turns out, and again, we're not, the science here is not you know, definitive, but it's getting there, is that how much virus you get infected with probably has some impact on how sick you get. So this is sort of the idea of the inoculum size. And so if you get infected with relatively small amount of virus above the threshold for infection, you're much more likely to have mild disease versus if you get a large amount of virus in. Again, one of the major benefits of wearing a mask. 
is that even if you get infected wearing a mask with the other person wearing a mask, first of all, you probably won't, but even if you did, uh, it would be a small enough inoculum that you'd have a much milder disease. And that plays in directly to what we're currently seeing in terms of more infections, not quite as many people getting hospitalized, getting, going to the ICU and dying. And you know, even yep. when you take out the fact that it's younger people and, and control for that, it, it just is not looking quite as bad these days. And it probably is a little bit less exposure that's, that's doing that, among possibly other factors. Yeah. Um, so what do we know about reinfections? And how do we explain the possible reports of reinfection, including the one that was just yesterday or the day before coming out of, out of Hong Kong? Uh, so my general thinking on this has been, I'm surprised it has taken us this long to find a definitive case. Uh, this is no surprise uh, that there is a reinfection. Uh, we will probably see more. And, and here's how to think about it. And it, by the way, just to be very clear, it doesn't mean, oh my God, there's no immunity to this virus and we're all going to get reinfected and it's going to be horrible. No. Here's the way to think about this is that being infected with the virus clearly generates in almost everybody an immune response. That immune response, as far as we know today, at the end of August of 2020, based on everything we know, seems pretty durable. But it is not a perfect immune response. It's not what people talk about as sterilizing immunity. And it is not sterilizing immunity for everybody. Some people may have sterilizing immunity, meaning they just cannot get reinfected. Uh, but some people won't. What we saw with the Hong Kong person was that he was reinfected. Uh, so it wasn't the original virus. It was a different uh, strain of the virus. And he had no symptoms. And that's exactly what you'd want to see from immunity. You'd expect the person could get reinfected, uh, but they would just not have symptoms because their body mounted an effective response and they didn't get sick. Uh, that's fabulous. So I looked at the Hong Kong case and, and said, this is what we were hoping for. And it looks like it's pretty rare. Now there's some stories coming out of both Belgium and the Netherlands. Again, would not be surprised if a small proportion of people get reinfected. And the hope is it's not a large number. Uh, hope is those people don't get sick. Hope is that those people don't get, uh, don't transmit widely. But we see this with other coronaviruses. We see this with other respiratory viruses. This kind of magical thinking of people get infected once, they'd have sterilizing immunity for the rest of their lives, and we'd be completely done. It is, well, it's that, it's magical thinking. It also, just last point on this, makes it a reminder that trying to achieve herd immunity through natural infection is a bad idea. Like, it's going to be hard because people are going to be getting reinfected. And so what we really want to do is get to a point where uh, we protect people until we have that vaccine, and then the vaccine should help us. And, and the last point, maybe just sorry to add more to this, is that the vaccine is not going to be lifelong. I'd be very surprised if a vaccine generated sterilizing immunity uh, for the rest of your life. So it might be that it protects you from getting very sick and you have to get a booster every year. Okay, that, that'd be great. I, the, I mean, you know, that, that alone would be more than good enough to make a big difference with this pandemic. It certainly would get us a long way beyond where we are right now. So absolutely. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so can you explain the idea of losing antibody immunity and, and the possibility that what's called T-cell immunity may actually remain with this virus? Yeah. So first of all, just very simple. Uh, the immune system is incredibly complex, but the one simple way to think about it is there are two arms of the immunity. There's humoral immunity. Uh, made, these are antibodies made by your B cells, and then there's cellular immunity. And they both are important. Um, we think that the, this infection generates immunity of, you know, sort of, uh, of both arms get activated. 
the question of whether antibodies decline and therefore you lose your antibody response, I think has been over, overstated. Let me explain what I mean. In lots of infections, we see that when you have an infection, you get a big spike in your antibodies, but over time, those antibodies go way, way down. The key question is when you're re-exposed, do those antibodies come back? And everything we've seen about this virus seems to suggest that they do, but we don't know for sure. But even imagine the worst case scenario of they don't or not much. You still have that second arm of your immune system, and those are the T cells. And the T cells are activated. They get activated in the, in the context of, a, of an infection uh, and a reinfection, and they are become a really important part of fighting off the virus. So um, the way I would think about this is we've got multiple arms. They all seem to be working. Um, and so when you read studies of antibody levels dropping very, very low after four weeks or eight weeks, I would not lose any sleep over it. Yes, absolutely. And um, I, I feel like with this new virus coming around, it's giving everybody kind of a crash course in immunology. And, exactly. and, and <laughs> um, so I think it's pretty obvious that we as a country missed our initial opportunity to try to get this COVID-19 pandemic under control. At this point, what can we do to try to get viral spread under control while also keeping the economy afloat? Because that's been the main driver for trying yeah. to get everybody back. Yeah, I have, by the way, never believed um, that there should have to be a trade-off between the economy and public health. And I've also believed that the lockdowns that we did in, in uh, April and May were very, very broad and and overly so, but we really didn't have a choice because we didn't have good testing. So we didn't know where we needed to lock down and where we didn't. Even though we have lots of problems with testing now, um, it is clearly much, much better. And so when we see large numbers of cases still in large parts of the US, and when people say we need a national lockdown, I've generally disagreed. I don't believe that that's useful. I think you need targeted policies to bring the virus under control so you can open up the economy, get kids back to school, get people back to work. That's the strategy. So how do we do it? There is the standard public health stuff that we need to do, right? So we, we just need everybody to be wearing a mask when they're outside their home. This to me is like, not a freedom thing. Like I don't get to get in my car and drive 80 miles per hour down a side street in my neighborhood because of freedom. No, because I'm gonna kill somebody and, and I might kill myself, but I might also kill someone else and I don't get to do that. In the same way, I think when you're out and about, you should be wearing a mask. And I think we should have rules about that in the middle of a, of a public health crisis. Second is I just think in the middle of a pandemic, we're going to have to make certain sacrifices. And that includes, like, maybe we just don't have bars, indoor bars and indoor dining. Look, I love uh, indoor dining. I love restaurants. One of my favorite things to do. I have not sat inside a restaurant uh, since, you know, whenever, March or something, right? And it might be that we don't, we're not able to do that. And that means that we may have to provide extra support for bar owners and restaurant owners and workers who work there, but that's fine. But indoor gatherings really have to be looked at very, very carefully and generally avoided. Uh, and third is we've got to fix testing. You know, the testing stuff is like, this is public health 101, and we still aren't testing in the way that we want to. I, you know, should be able to, uh, first of all, we should be doing testing in schools. We should be testing in colleges. We should, I should be able to, if I'm going to go visit my elderly parents. I should be able to go get a test and know I can get results back in six hours. So it's safe for me to go see them. We can't do that stuff. And so if we can fix testing, avoid indoor gatherings, wear masks, boy, we can get 90% of the way there. And then we can open up a lot of our economy. And then when the vaccine becomes wide 
widely available that will add a lot of benefit to this whole effort. And we can get out of this without a lot more Americans dying and without destroying our economy. And that's what we should be going for. Yeah, that's an outstanding roadmap to it, to where we should have been and, and hopefully where we can go. Um, Dr. Ja, I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners in this podcast for joining us. You, you've provided some really insightful commentary on, on some very complex topics and, and make it very digestible. So I, I thank you for your expertise and your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.